Well, when I was a teenager and started attending church and youth group and all that good stuff, we had a youth leader named Mike. Mike was and is just about the most laid-back guy you could ever meet. He lived on Lake Geneva, and he worked for a boating company. There were all kinds of things that amazed me about Mike when I was a teenager, but nothing more so than the fact that he only slept about three hours a night. I was so baffled by that. It's not like he was sick. He didn't have some kind of weird sleep disorder. It's, it's not like he woke up exhausted and couldn't function. Now, I realize doctors may disagree with this, but Mike always told us that that is all he needed. Three to four hours, and he was good to go. And I remember being in high school and my friends and I wondering, what does he do with all of those extra hours? All of those extra hours while everyone else is asleep, what is he doing? He's awake something like 20 or 21 hours a day every single day. So what does he do with all of that time? It's like we thought he was some kind of weird like superhuman or something like that. We love the idea of seeing people do things that seem beyond human limitations. Whether it's people who seem not to need as much sleep as the rest of humanity or or even seeing people push themselves physically past human limitations. Whatever it is, we are so drawn to that. Well, this morning, we are in week two of our series, Beyond Measure, where we are talking about these attributes of God that we don't talk a whole lot about. And so last week, we talked about the incomprehensibility of God, that God desires to be known by us, but that we cannot know God fully that he didn't create us to know him fully. And in that time together last week, we talked about the reality that we were created with limits. And that by and large, we don't like them. We live in a culture here that tells us that we can be anything we want to be, that we can do anything we want to do. A culture that tells us that if you can dream it, you can make it happen. When limits are put on us, or even when we perceive that limits are being put on us, as is the case during this pandemic, for instance, well, you can see how well we're handling that as a country. We like the idea of being limitless. It's why I think the very first sin that entered the world, the one that broke humanity, it's why I think that was about limits. We talked about that last week, that when Adam and Eve took that first bite of fruit, It wasn't that they turned away from God, it's that they wanted to be like God, that they wanted to be limitless like God was, to know all that God knows. And as we're talking here this morning, they wanted to be self-sufficient as God is. Have you ever thought about that before? That God is completely self-sufficient. Now, if you study this attribute of God alongside scholars and theologians, they, of course, have another word for this concept, and it's called aseity. It's a Latin word that means from one's self, and it means just that, that God is self-derived or self-originated. In other words, that God wasn't created by something or someone else. God is completely independent, completely autonomous, and completely self-sufficient. So often because we are limited, we don't realize the the boxes that we have put God in. And that is why we're doing this series. 
to help us realize how small we oftentimes try to make God. But because we are limited, we can't fathom God's ways. And so oftentimes we assume that God's ways must be our ways because that's the only thing that makes sense to us. For instance, if you are sitting in the room here this morning, I would ask you to raise your hand if you have ever heard someone say that God created us because God was lonely or that God created us because he needed someone to love or because he needed someone or something to worship him right? I'm sure we've all heard that before, that God was lonely or needed some company or that God was bored or that God needed to be worshiped. And so God created us to fill any or all of those things, right? That makes sense because that is what makes sense in our finite minds. And one could speculate that it was similar to the answer that would have made sense to the scholars that Paul was talking to when he, when he wrote the verses that we're using as the foundation for our message this morning. So in the book of Acts, chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, Greece. Now, Athens was known as the place where lots of philosophers and scholars would gather. In fact, that's all they would do. They would gather every day, all day, and they would spend all day listening to each other, listening to each other teach, and listening to each other's ideas, and then they would discuss those ideas, or sometimes they would argue about them. The two main groups of people who would get together in Athens back then were called Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans were followers of the Greek philosopher Epicurus, who believed that philosophical discussion led to happiness. In fact, happiness was, was the absolute ultimate end goal for, for the Epicureans. They avoided pain and suffering at all costs and sought to be happy in all ways. Well, one of the ways that they were happiest was when they were sitting around discussing and debating all things philosophical. And so in this text that we're going to look at, they weren't just picking a fight with Paul. They were doing what they do best because that is what makes them happiest. And the Stoics, well, we still use that word today for a reason. The Stoics were hard rationalists. Their ultimate end goal was knowledge and reason, devotion to duty, and self-sufficiency. And so taking pride in their superior knowledge, they found Paul to be talking, well, some kind of crazy talk. What is this babbler trying to say, they said? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, that's kind of ironic given the reason that Paul first began speaking with this group anyway. And so if you want to follow along, we're looking at Acts chapter 17. And starting in verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul's entire reason for engaging these people in conversation was because as he wandered around Athens, he realized that the city was packed full of idols. And yet here they were calling him a babbler because he seemed to be advocating a foreign god. A little ironic. So maybe you already know that the ancient Athenians built altars to their main gods. These are the ones that we still hear about. Zeus, Aphrodite, Athena, whom the entire city was named after. But they also built idols to, to gods of more abstract things like justice and fame 
and energy and modesty and virtue. The list is long. There is almost this sense that they were trying to cover all of their bases. It's as if no matter how many altars they built, they were never completely certain that they had covered all of the gods and everything that should be covered. And so they just kept building more altars throughout the city, just in case. And so here comes Paul on the scene to tell them about this new god. And so they decided that he needed to be brought to the Areopagus. So the Areopagus is the Greek term for Mars Hill. And it was this place of assembly in Athens. It's where the Supreme Court would meet on religious matters, amongst other things. And so this gathering on Mars Hill wasn't, this particular one wasn't really an official gathering necessarily. It was more of of an informal one as they wanted to hear, they wanted the officials to hear about the babbling that Paul was doing. While Paul could be in danger of getting arrested, as he did in Philippi, for teaching about a false god, he was not yet in trouble here. They just wanted to hear him speak. And so take a look at verse 19 here. It says, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So then Paul said to them, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now imagine, just imagine that you are sitting in that group of people sitting on Mars Hill in Athens that day. You only believe that which you can grasp with your finite mind, which is pretty common in our world today as well. And then, and then Paul busts out these two verses. And these are our, our key verses for today. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, there's this great author by the name of Jen Wilkin who wrote a book called None Like Him. And I plan to quote it several times this morning but because you'll notice that in this series, when you're preaching on topics like the ones that we're trying to tackle, it's best to rely on people who are smarter than you. So anyway, in her book, Wilkin says this about those two verses in Acts that I just read. She says, Creating and sustaining all things, he, God, he is himself created and sustained by none. For all eternity, he is perfectly provided for, and in and of himself, needless of any aid, unflagging in strength, never hungry or thirsty, experiencing no lack. Nothing and no one outside of himself offers aid to him because he created everything. Nothing he has created could possibly be needful to him for his existence. If it were, then like him, it would have always existed. Our God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. 
So thankfully this morning you're watching this online so you can rewind that quote and listen to it all over again because it's mind-blowing. And it's mind-blowing because it is so not us. This is why we started this particular series with the reality that God is incomprehensible. Because we needed to first address the reality that there are things about God that we will not and cannot ever know. And so now that we have established that particular truth, we can move on to how mind-blowing it is that God is completely self-sufficient. God is needed by all and needful of nothing. Which means that God didn't create humanity. God didn't create the world because he was bored. God had no need. And it means that God didn't create humanity because he was lonely or because he needed something or someone to love because God has no need. And I realize that may feel like a little bit of a slap in the face to some of you this morning because it's nice to be needed. And it's really nice to think about God needing us. How wonderful that the God of the universe was lonely and then made me and suddenly he wasn't so lonely anymore. We all love to be needed. Which in reality is another great irony that we'll talk about in just a moment, that we long to be needed in a culture that tells us that we shouldn't need anything from anyone ever. But I digress. God was perfectly sufficient just as God was. God is perfectly sufficient just as God is. In the covenant, we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We know their love to be perfect. They need nothing, and they need no one. And so Wilkin writes this hilarious encounter about this, where she says, imagine if God had greeted Abram in Ur with this. Abram, when I met you, it was like my whole life came into focus. You complete me. Imagine if God had said to Moses from the burning bush, Moses, you're such a gifted leader, wise and compassionate. I would be lost without you. You are my better half. She says these kinds of, sentimental, these kinds of sentiments track well in romantic comedies and anniversary cards, but they are utterly out of place in our thinking about God. They are purely human in their expression. God has never and will never declare his need for us. It is for us to say, I need thee every hour. It is for him to say, I am. Because that's exactly what God did say to Moses in the burning bush. He didn't tell Moses how wonderful he was or how much God needed him. No, Moses was super hesitant to do what it was that God was calling him to do. And then when Moses went and asked God, well, who should I say is sending me? God simply says, I am who I am. Or I am that I am. Or I will be what I will be. Or even that I will create, I create what I will create. So, cool, Pastor Jen. God doesn't need me. Thanks for the big sermon hug this morning. I feel super now. God doesn't need me. Neat. But here's the thing about God's self-sufficiency. It is actually very, very good news for us. How is it good news? Well, look at it this way. 
Is there anyone in your life that you haven't let down ever? Because I'm fairly certain that I have let down everyone I have ever loved. Not intentionally, of course. It just happens. I say the wrong thing. I fail to show up. I didn't acknowledge something that was important to them. I didn't listen well. The list goes on. I certainly don't mean to hurt the people that I love, but I just do sometimes. I'm guessing that I'm not alone in that. Well, as Wilkin writes, praise God that his plans do not rely on my faithfulness, that his joy doesn't hinge on my good behavior, that his glory doesn't depend on my performance. I stumble along, chasing my own agendas and plotting out my own ends, occasionally offering him the reverence he is perpetually due. He is unruffled and unharmed by my inconsistency. He is pleased to be glorified either through me or in spite of me, but does not need me in the least. So that's one of the reasons why God's self-sufficiency is good news for us. It's also good news for us because if God's joy or glory or worship depended solely on us, then God would constantly experience disappointment. A second reason that God's self-sufficiency is good news for us is because we don't want to worship a limited God. Part of God's greatness is that he has no limits. Because think about what our limits do to us. It's not just that our limits cause us to be able to not do something that we want to do. The reality, the truth is that we are really quite controlled by our limits. I'm going to use Jen's words here again, but at least we have the same name. She says, we humans know well the relationship between need and control. Think about hunger, for example. What happens when you get really hungry at a ballpark or a theme park? Suddenly, you are willing to pay $15 for bad nachos and a soft drink. Why? Because the park manager knows your level of need will influence your decision-making and that you have no other food options. And so the hungrier you are, the more you will pay for the park's food vendors. Your needs influence your decisions. A need for money can influence us to steal. A need for intimacy can influence us to have an affair. A need for attention can influence us to talk in certain tones or to dress in a certain style. The greater our need, the greater our potential to be coerced or convinced into paying a steep price to meet it. Just ask an addict. Our need weakens us in the face of temptation. That said, aren't you glad that God is self-sufficient? Can you now see how and why it is such good news that God doesn't need us? Any need that God had could result in God being coerced or manipulated the same way that we are when we have unmet needs. Thankfully, our God is needful of nothing. But there's, there's another reason why God's self-sufficiency is good news for us. It is such good news for us because though God does not need us, God chose us. Listen to this from Ephesians, from Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. While God is needful of nothing, we are a needy people. We were created that way. Despite the fact that followers of Jesus know that we are in need, we still see our need as one of our greatest flaws, which leads us to see self-sufficiency as the greatest thing we could ever achieve in this life. One last Wilkin quote, I promise. She said, we become plate spinners and ball jugglers with our lives collapsing around us. We paint on a smile and fake our way through another Sunday at church, denying our need for authenticity. We take out another line of credit, denying our need for financial stability. We ignore symptoms of illness, denying our need for medical attention. We work late into the night, denying our need to rest. We starve ourselves to a size two, denying our need for food. I'm fine. I'm better than fine, and I certainly don't need help. We turn from the God worship that should have resulted from seeing our need to the self-worship of believing that we, like God, are self-sufficient. God, in his infinite wisdom, created us to need him, and he also created us to need each other. Do you see why we end up spending so much of our life struggling? God is self-sufficient, and yet we treat him as if he isn't. We are not self-sufficient, and yet we live as if we should be. On the flip side, if we get careless in our thinking about God's self-sufficiency, it can have some negative effects on us. We could allow ourselves to become complacent pretty quickly, couldn't we? For instance, if God puts someone on your heart to go talk to, and we can't get past our lazy or our fearful self, we just kind of toss it aside because we say, well, God doesn't really need me anyway, right? Or maybe there's an opportunity for you to serve somewhere at church or in our neighborhood or a community organization, and we think, yeah, but somebody else will do it. God doesn't really need me anyway. But again, this is the beauty of God's great love for us. God is needful of nothing, but of all that he created or could have created, he chose us. Of all that God could love, God loves you. Of all that God could have chosen to save, God saved you. Look at what it says here in John 15, 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit that would last. God is needed by all and needful of nothing. Somewhere along the way, some of us started to believe this lie 
that the well from which God draws to take care of us will somehow, someday, and probably with us, run dry. But if we go back to the beginning of this message and to our obsession with limitations, the reality is that our problem is not on any limitation that God has in providing for us. Our problem is our own limitation in what we believe God can or will provide for us. We live this lie of scarcity in the face of limitless and abundant God. And when we live into that lie, we begin to grasp at the things of this world as if they will fulfill the needs that we have, as if we don't trust God to meet our needs for us, as if somehow God is the one with limits instead of us. So as we leave here this morning, here are some questions that we can ask ourselves. Do we tend to fall into the habit of thinking that God needs us? That we need to work harder, pray harder, serve harder, evangelize harder because God needs us? Do we tend to fall into thinking that God doesn't need us at all? So why bother doing any of it? Why bother challenging or stretching myself to serve in new or bold ways if God doesn't need me anyway? Do you have a harder time accepting that God is self-sufficient or accepting that you are not? And in light of God's self-sufficiency, in light of the reality that God doesn't need you, how much does it impact your life to know that God chose you anyway? And how will your life be different today knowing that you are loved and chosen by the God of all creation. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks this morning. God, as we dive into these these huge attributes of yours that we don't talk a whole lot about, at first it doesn't seem like your self-sufficiency is very good news to us, but I'm grateful for the words this morning, Lord, that remind us why that is such good news, that we serve and are loved by a God who has no limits that your love for us has no limits, that your ability to provide for us has no limits. And so God, I just pray this morning that you would help us to recognize that though you don't need us, you chose us, that though you don't need us, you love us. And I pray, God, that that would stir something within our very soul today, that the God of the universe knows my name and loves me and chooses me. And so, God, may we spend this day and all our days serving you. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.